so anyway, I'm going to go ahead and get started. I'll say some more things of an introductory nature later, but it's good to see all of you. Look forward to all of our studies together. Walking daily humbly with your king. You might recognize that text from Micah. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love mercy and walk daily humbly with your God? And that's a very notable text in the Minor Prophets. Many of you are familiar with it. We're going to talk more about the context of it a little bit later when I have more time. But I have to confess to you that this was something, this last phrase of Micah chapter 6 verse 8, that either was not emphasized to me enough as a young person growing up among the Lord's people, and that's the way you say that. That's my pet peeve. They know that at home. You don't grow up in the church. You become a member of the Lord's church when you embrace union with the Lord and all that goes with that. You grow up among the Lord's people. So I just sort of teach them. I say it that way. Grow up among the Lord's people. And, and then you become one of them. That's the ideal and the goal as you mature and get old enough to do that and to embrace faith in Jesus Christ. So I was growing up among the Lord's people. and I don't know if it wasn't emphasized sufficiently or I just wasn't paying attention and didn't get it. You know, maturation takes time. You see things on a pretty simple level as a young person. And so I just never really focused too much on this idea of walking with God. Now, I knew there was a couple of guys who walked with God. We'll get to them a little bit later. So I want to tell you about some books that I read in my early days of preaching. That goes back to 1983. And one of them was Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And that was a, a classic, it's a classic work. I mean, you can still order it on Amazon. But that led me to an understanding of God that I did not have before. And it's really guided a lot of my journey. I could tell you several things and people who had a profound impact on my understanding of God's word and my work as a preacher. I'll save some of that for later. And I'll talk to you about some other books that I've read uh, beginning in 1983 that, that were really eye-opening to me and helpful to me. So, I want to talk to you this week about walking with God. Now, this sermon that I'm about to preach to you was written in January of 2019. My life had been in tremendous chaos uh, prior to that. And January of 2019 was a special month for me. I may share some of that later. Uh, it was in that time of great change in my life that I wrote this sermon, and I took it on the road for the first time to Louisville, Kentucky, the Manslick Road Congregation. If you're, any of you are familiar with that, I have some longtime dear friends uh, who worship there in Louisville, and I preached it there for the first time away from home. We have some friends there, Dell and I do, uh, David and Diane Key, who are roughly our age, and after I preached this particular sermon, David came up to me and said, I think you should preach that everywhere. And so this is the 12th edition of this lesson. Hopefully you'll find it helpful as he did. 
But I've got to tell you about a sister I met there that week. I had dinner with her and her son on the night I preached this. And she was a delightful sister in Christ. I believe she was like 92 at the time. And so she's in her mid-90s now. And her name I had never heard before. I think we were talking about it yesterday uh, with Rebe. Uh, her name is Captola. Do you know any other Captolas? Oh, you have one. Who is she here? Okay, she used to be here. There was a sister named Captola. It's an older name that you don't see a lot of mothers naming their children that. But uh, so you've heard and known of a Captola. Well, there's still one alive, and at least as far as I know, for in Louisville, Kentucky. And this sister was an absolute hoot. You know, you, you get somebody who's in their 90s with that kind of personality, and like she dominated the discussion at dinner. Just it was, we just wanted to hear her talk. It was, it was incredible, and and she even has a YouTube video. If you go to, and I check this out every time I preach this, you go to YouTube and you type in Captola, how to iron a shirt. Okay, and she comes, she's, she told me all about it. She said, yeah, my daughter put it on Facebook, and I mean on, on YouTube, because she's concerned that young people don't know how to iron. And so she did this short tutorial, how to iron a shirt. And I think it's had at least 60 views. You would think it would get more than that. I think I promoted about 30. So, so she's on YouTube with how to iron a shirt. And I've gone through all of that to say... After I preach this sermon, she comes out into the foyer and comes up to me and shakes my hand. And she said, I really needed that lesson. Here's somebody in her early 90s who is still trying to grow and learn in her relationship with God. And that impressed me. You know, she... She was still trying to get closer to God in her life. Okay, so I want to take you to perhaps a familiar psalm to begin this morning. Psalm 139. This is a psalm of David. Perhaps you're familiar. I I love the first several verses of Psalm 139. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. So I'm reading from the New American Standard in case you're wondering what translation I use. But this kind of knowledge overwhelms David. That God knows every, he knows a word on my tongue before I ever speak it. He knows every detail of my life intimately, everything. Now, that's remarkable that our creator is that intimately associated with us, especially insignificant folks like me. And perhaps you see yourself as the same. God is intimately acquainted with everything about our existence. And he can do that with 8 billion People. I guess that's how many people there are in the world. I guess that's an estimate that's close. Eight billion people. That's a number that 
is beyond our minds to even grasp. And I tell you that because I live in Houston, and I think there are 8 billion people in Houston. I mean, I, when you're driving on the roads, it feels like there's 8 billion people. There's, there's people everywhere. But you think about all the population of the world, and God intimately knows everything about everyone. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Derek Kidner says in his commentary on Psalms, he says, any small thoughts of God are magnificently transcended by this psalm. Yet for all of its height and depth, it remains intensely personal from first to last. You can't read the bottom of that. Uh, this isn't just about theology. You know, God is omniscient or God is omnipresent. It's the omniscience of God that leads David to adoration. It is the omnipresence of God that flows out of thoughts of his omniscience. Such knowledge is so wonderful. Maybe there's somewhere that I can go to escape this God. That's sort of the, the Jonah complex, isn't it? Grabbing the ship to Tarshish to get away from spiritual responsibility. Uh, that's another sermon I won't preach called Ticket to Tarshish. Uh, people find all kinds of different tickets to get anywhere they want to go that's away from responsibility to God. And so where, where, the, where am I going to go to flee his presence? Well, you can't leave God's presence anywhere. And then that flows into the fact that God is all-knowing and God is all-powerful to an all-creative God, that's where he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows all the days that were ordained for me when there was not yet one of them. Isn't that an incredible statement? How long are you going to live? You don't know. You don't have any control, or at least not the control we would like, over that. Suddenly we're caught in a trap. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, how long are you going to live? You know God knows that. He knows the last day you will breathe oxygen on this earth. And he is far more involved in the journey of believers and the end of our time here than sometimes we reflect on. And appreciate. And so he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And then these comments in 17 and 18, I'm not going to cover the last section, though I would add uh, there's some difficult things in there that would need some explanation as to what David says. And, but you can go home and read them. We can discuss them if you'd like. But I want to just focus on these two verses that follow that section or in that section. When he says, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God? How great is the sum of them? Now the question that commentators raise, are these the thoughts that David has about God, or is this simply God's thoughts? His thoughts that are not our thoughts, and his ways that are not our ways. And, and, and just thinking about what God knows, and the things that that the knowledge God has and how vast the sum of them is, is it God's thoughts or David's thoughts about God? Either way, uh, it's extraordinary. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. 
And that's a lot. And then he says, when I awake, I am still with you. And it was in January three years ago that I started looking at that phrase and it struck me. What does that passage say? When I awake, I am still with you. When David arose from sleep, his eyes opened to a new day, his first thoughts were about God. And so as I thought about this, how can I, like David, more consistently have God as my first thought every day? And what this suggests about David and what should be true about us is that we're godly. What does it mean to be godly? What what is the typical answer that's given in Bible class? God-like. Yeah. And to be godly is to be God-like, although I really don't like it as a definition because it's a part of being godly. It's not the totality of it. If we said somebody's worldly, we wouldn't just say that they're world-like. We would say that they're all about the world. They're world-focused. And the same is true of the term godly. We're all about God. We're we're God-focused in our lives. How can we develop the kind of godliness that David had where he would wake up in the morning and be thinking about God? And first of all, you have to recognize that you need him. And I love saying things like this to an audience because I, that I don't know. I don't know you all very well. A lot of you I'm meeting for the first time, but it, I really don't need to know much about your circumstances to let you know that you need him. I know that about every one of us, whether you recognize that need or not. And so what we learn about God in the Old Testament and particularly the Psalms, even in the New Testament as Jesus arrives on the scene, is how awesome our God is. He is awesome in his person. He is awesome in his works. He is awesome in his promises. I did a sermon, Standing on the Promises, not Sitting on the Premises. Standing on the Promises, where I enumerated some of the magnificent promises that God makes uh, to the people, to his people. And he's an awesome God because of the help that he renders. And you desperately need his help in your life. And so when I awake, I am still with you. I'd preached this sermon three times before someone said, that's not the right verse. That's actually verse 18. I'm really disappointed in the people at home. They didn't catch it. It's verse 18, not verse 17. But I saw this pretty picture of this verse. And so I grabbed it off Google Images and didn't realize that it was the wrong verse. The great thing about PowerPoint is you can just fix that. You just throw an eight right over top of it, and, and you've solved, you, you solved the problem there. All right, so what was it about David's life that caused him to be able to say this? How am I going to be able to say this? This testifies to the importance of spiritual training. Now, we're going to talk about this again in a minute. But when Samuel comes to the house of David... What is he looking to do? 
1 Samuel 16. What's he looking to do? Anoint a new king. And here comes Jesse's oldest son. And Samuel thinks, yeah, he, he looks like a king. And God says, nope, that's not the guy. Because he looks on the heart. And here come the next two. Oh, they're, they're strapping young men as well. They're going to fight in the army of King Saul. Not the guy. Not the guy. Seven sons of Jesse come before Samuel. You got, you got any other sons? Well, so, tending the sheep. We, we can bring him in here. He's the guy. Now, what we learn from 1 Samuel 16 is that David has the kind of heart that God is looking for in his ruler. How, how did he get that? Was he born with it? He was just born with a good heart. Oh, no, no, no. This is spiritual training and development. Jesse was a man of faith. That faith trickled down. What, what about his mom? What do you know about David's mom? Anybody, anybody know what David's mom's name was? I'm going to give you big extra credit if you pull that rabbit out of the hat. I've had fun with this everywhere I've preached this. Well, her name's not mentioned. Now, she's mentioned. When David is on the run from Saul, at one point, he asked the king of Moab if his parents, his mother and father, can stay with them in Moab. And that happens. He speaks of his mom in Psalm 86 and calls her, he says, I am the son of your handmaid. So one thing we can put together from all of that is that David's mom was a faithful person as well as Jesse, probably involved deeply in his spiritual training, like we have Timothy's grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice, in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5. And the scriptures that he's learned from his youth, according to 2 Timothy 3 verse 14. So that's probably going on in the life of David. That's why his faith had developed as he was a young man out tending the sheep. And he gets inspired by the Holy Spirit to write such psalms as Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Okay, what's his mother's name? I haven't told you yet. If you had the name Nitzavet rolling around in your head. Uh, it doesn't sound like anybody had that one. Uh, that's her name according to the Jewish Talmud. Now, so can we trust that? That's not a, an inspired source. Well, uh, most people think that that's probably correct. Why would you come up with something not true? Jewish tradition had his mother's name as Nitzavet. So I test the people back home with biblical knowledge, and so I came back to this a year ago and said, remember what David's mother's name was? And boy, I saw all these blank looks on people's faces. There's a young man, Michael Petron, who sits in the back. He's a new convert to the Lord, at least was when I first taught this. And he goes, Nitzavet! And he was the only one that had it. Oh, he, he, just, he was glowing, you know. Uh, for some reason, he latched on to that little piece of information and, 
And it, it really encouraged him because he, he just feels like he doesn't know enough, you know, as a new convert, and he wants to, wants to know more than he does. And then he found out he knew something other people didn't know. Okay, so there's another part to the story that just happened. I preached this sermon in Stephenville, Texas, in the spring of this year. Now, what are the odds that somebody's at the Stephenville meeting who are going to be at my next meeting in Lubbock, Texas, at the King's Ridge Church? Well, she was there. This one young lady named Hannah was at the King's Ridge meeting. I said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to hear this again. She goes, well, I was going through something difficult at the time, and, and uh, so I want to come hear the lessons again anyway. And, and so she heard this lesson again. She goes, but I've got to tell you something. After it was over, she, kept, she goes, I had a professor ask a bonus question on a test, and it was, what was the name of David's mom? And he goes, because of your sermon, I got the answer right. I got the bonus points. So, Nitzvah, maybe it's something you need to know. So spiritual training was a big part of why David would get to where he is in writing all of these psalms about his walk, about his relationship with God. But the second thing and the critical thing that I want to share with you as we're running out of time is there was constant assurance of God's presence in his life. Is God real to you? How real is God to you? He was very real to David. And it started not just in his childhood and when he killed the lion and the bear. Remember that story? He tells how God was with him to kill the lion and the bear. Tells King Saul that before he goes out and faces Goliath. But look at what happened at the anointing. You, you don't think that impressed even David? That before his brothers, this takes place before his brothers, that he is anointed by the great prophet and judge Samuel to be the next king. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily from that point. It says later in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And so here was another evidence of God working in his life. Do you sense when you read the story of David and Goliath that he was pretty confident that God was there on the battlefield with him. Because I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to take you, you uncircumcised Philistine, and deliver you into the hands of God here today. You know, th there was a great sense of God's presence on that occasion, and even though there is but a step between him and death, he keeps escaping over and over. Saul, trying to kill him, has a couple of opportunities to strike the Lord's anointed, yet will not do it. And so despite the fact that he's on the run for a long period of time, wandering about in caves and deserts and holes in the ground. I think that part of Hebrews left about David foremost. Wandering about in caves and deserts and holes in the ground, men of whom the world was not worthy. How does David just become a footnote in Hebrews chapter 11? That's always, you know, that's, that's always puzzled. I just wish the Hebrew writer would have kept going. And, and said more about the heroes of faith. Here's one of my favorites. He comes back to his town that he's staying in at the time, Ziklag, where his family is. And that's where he and the men who are following him would stay. They come back after a campaign. They're, his family's been kidnapped. All of them. They're gone. And the city's been burned with fire. Even his men, they're so upset by what's happened that this has been allowed to happen. I guess David should have prevented this. 
that they want to kill David. They've turned on him. Maybe it's at this point that he writes the psalm, no one cares for my soul. Who knows? Psalm 142. But So what does he do? Well, let me tell you something. When you go through crisis, your first impulse, what is it? You're going to call your friend? Call the elders? Call, call Leon? I need some help here. I'm in, I'm in a crisis. Your first impulse should always be to consult the God of heaven. He is the ultimate help. Always. So what does David do? He calls Abiathar. Long story about Abiathar being his priest. I mean, uh, Abiathar's dad was killed earlier. And, and all of his brothers. So, so here Abiathar is David's personal priest. And they consult the ephod. And he gets an answer from God the answer is go follow after your family you'll get every one of them back alive (laughs) imagine that you're going to get them all back you're going to have them all safe and sound and then you go and it's exactly what God tells you because it always is that way they all come back safe and sound you think you're going to ever question the existence of God after that David never woke up any morning wondering if God was real if God was alive. And that's, that's really the point. Even when Ishbosheth tried to make a claim to the throne, Saul's son, the people said, no, you, you've been anointed to be the king. We know that you're God's choice. And you don't think he knew something about God's presence? When Uzzah was struck dead for touching the ark, you know, he was upset about all of that. That was not his finest moment. But, but he saw the very power of God. You touched the ark, you die, and boom. Because of his irreverence, Uzzah was killed. And so that's the point that I want to make about all of these stories. And oh, God's voice, that's another part. It's not only off the screen, I forgot about it. Uh, All the prophets that David spoke to, Nathan and Gad in particular, and Nathan was the one that came in and said, you're the man. He, He had all of this communication from God's spokesman to him. And so God had been real to David. His whole life. And that's why when you go to bed at night and you wake up the next morning, you still have thoughts of this awesome God we talked about in the beginning. His promises, his help, his work, his power. He thought about God so often and was so glad. When he had the opportunity to go and worship with his people, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And that leads me to the final point, and that is that he practiced his devotion. How often do you pray? We're to be devoted to prayer, Romans 12 says. How often do you pray? Well, we pray three times a day before our meals. That's good. That's good. Do we do that out of habit or tradition or because we know that we need to be communing with God on a regular basis? I mean, praying regularly like Daniel did as he would go out even though it was forbidden and pray, kneeling toward Jerusalem. You know, it, it's, a good, it's a great habit to have, to build in prayer to your life. But how consistent are we with all of that and why are we doing it? Because, I, I don't know about you, but do you ever eat popcorn? You like popcorn? Most of you eat popcorn. 
Have you ever prayed over your popcorn? I guess because it's not as good for you as meat and potatoes or bacon and eggs. We sit down on the couch, eat popcorn without praying. Are we just not thankful? I guess it's not really food, is it? Maybe it is. I love popcorn. But we don't pray about that. But I don't think we have to. I think if there's an occasion that goes by, if we didn't pray for a meal. Oh, no, we're, we're ingrates and deserve to be lost as a result of that. I don't see any of that in Scripture. But we do need to pray regularly. And families that get away from that, not a good thing. It's certainly a good thing to teach our children to pray thanking God for his provision. After all, give us this day our daily bread as a part of the model prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. We, we just don't have to do that because we think because there's a grocery store around the corner. There's hundreds of grocery stores that I have access to in Houston. I mean, I may have to drive 20 minutes, but, the, but there's a lot of them. You got Sprouts and Whole Foods and HEB and Kroger, even a Randall's here and there. All kind Brookshire's, whatever it is. There's grocery stores. And so we need something, we go to the store. Our pantries are full. Well, they are for now. But maybe we're going to reach a time where the, where the next meal is coming from is not so sure. And give us this day our daily bread might come to have more meaning to us than it has had before. If you're not praying, if you're not spending time communing with the Lord, you'll not get to where David was. When I awake, I'm still with you. And if it was his first thought of the day, I want to suggest to you that David was with God as his day concluded. If you're thinking about everything under the sun other than the presence and awesomeness of God before you go to bed, then what are the odds that you're going to wake up the next morning thinking about God? And that's why we talk about praying before we go to bed. That's, that's a good practice to have, to have some communication with God. So that you can be like David and wake up the next day and still be with him. Some have suggested Derek Kidner again, uh, one of my favorite commentators. He's, he's very concise. That's why I don't like to read a lot. Just get to it. And Derek Kidner does uh, in the Tyndale series. He wonders that in this statement in Psalm 139, when I awake, I'm still with you, is that there's a hint here of God's future intentions for us and the resurrection. When we will awake from sleep unto eternity. Uh, That's an interesting thought that he has. What a great treasure to walk with God. To enjoy relationship with him. And hopefully this psalm will help us to do that. And we come to the end of the psalm, verses 23 and 24. And these are words that we need to be praying. I think just pray, pray right out of the Bible. This, this is a good one to pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Got any of those? See if there is any in offensive way in me and lead me. 
in the way everlasting. You got the courage to pray the prayer that David prayed? Got any anxious thoughts that need to be squelched? Got any offensive ways that need to be changed? You pray a prayer like this, God's about to work on you. And lead me in the everlasting way. There's a lot of detours. We're going to talk about that Tuesday night. A lot of people, things beckoning you to go this way and that way. But we need to walk God's path. More on that in a moment in the next lesson. We need to walk God's path. And we need to be praying, lead me. Lest I stray. Lead me in the everlasting way. Thank you for listening.